Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of the Irish Times Women's Podcast. A rich, intense, Chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, this is our last podcast before Joe Biden becomes President of America and Kamala Harris becomes Vice President, which means, of course, it's our last podcast when it is still the horrible true fact that Donald Trump is the president of America. But only a couple of more days before that is no longer true, before his disgusting four-year term is over. And there are massive sighs of relief in this house. And I know many of you will feel exactly the same. Uh, of course, we know he, he won't be gone completely. He'll be popping up in various places, but it is the end of him in the White House, the end of him in one of the most influential roles in politics in the world, the end of his despicable children and his acolytes being so close uh, to the seat of power. And on a good front, of course, Kamala Harris being the first female vice president is amazing news. And also her lovely husband, Doug Ermhoff, is now the second gentleman, or he's just about to be. And it's been wonderful to look at him on social media. You can follow him at second gentleman, talking about how he's going to approach that role. Of course, a role that women have been in for all those years. And it's a really a game changing thing. So there's lots to be happy about. A good week. Goodbye, Trump. Don't let the door hit you on the arse on the way out. Now, we just also want to let you know that for some reason, our last episode, which was a really powerful one about the mother and baby homes, it didn't go up on the Apple podcast feed for some reason, which we're still trying to figure out. So we hope that as many of you managed to listen to it as possible. But if you did miss it, we want you to let you know you can find it on SoundCloud or other podcast apps and also on the irishtimes.com forward slash women's podcast. And we'd really love you to hear it. So please do try to find it if you missed it. And we're trying to get that issue with Apple fixed because we know so many of you listen to the podcast on that platform. And just a quick reminder also that starting next Monday, we'll have the Irish Times Winter Nights Festival. It goes on from January 25th to January 29th. It's a festival of culture, conversation and ideas with features the likes of Edith Eager, Nicola Sturgeon, Emma Dabbery, Mairead McGuinness, Gabriel Byrne, Dara O'Brien, Paul Howard, uh, John King and more guests in conversation with all your favourite Irish Times journalists. You can get tickets on the Irish Times website, irishtimes.com forward slash winter nights. That's irishtimes.com forward slash winter nights. And we hope to see many of you there. It would be something great to put in the diary when the only things we have to put in the diary are the big shop and the bit of exercise. Now, the podcast today is with a wonderful woman called Jane Olmeyer, a historian and academic specialising in early modern Irish and British history. She's the Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin and the Chair of the Irish Research Council, which funds research across all disciplines. We got her on to talk to Cathy Sheridan because this month and next, Jane will present the 
really important series of lectures called the Ford Lectures at Oxford, which is the university's most prestigious public lecture series. And she's the first woman from an Irish university to be invited to present the lectures. And she is only one of 10 women to present the annual series since it was inaugurated 124 years ago. And the last time someone from Ireland was invited actually was in 1977. And that was FSL Lyons, who we'll all remember from our school history books. Jane's specialist topic is empire, which is especially pertinent with Brexit, our own decade of commemorations and international campaigns like Black Lives Matter. And she talks to Cathy about all of that. And of course, empire and the legacy of empires are a particularly sensitive subject at the moment. So she reflects on that too. She's going to deliver six lectures in total online, of course, because of the pandemic. But it's her last one that brings the historical theme most up to date as it focuses on the impact of empire on Ireland and how how empire has been remembered and how our imperial past has shaped the lives of those of us living on this island. Now, if that weren't all prestigious enough, there are actually three women internal candidates for the new provost's job at Trinity and the election is next April and Jane is one of the candidates. So you never know, we may have her back after the provost election in April if she's successful in that and becomes the first female provost of Trinity College Dublin. She couldn't talk much about that because she has to kind of keep her powder dry on that subject at the moment until the election starts. But she did talk about her early life in northern Rhodesia and growing up in Belfast and about her vast academic experience all over the world. She also spoke about women in higher education, the glass ceiling, the gender pay gap, sexism and the bullying she herself experienced while working in a Scottish university. Here she is, Jane Allmeyer, in a fascinating conversation about Ireland and empire and academia with Cathy Sheridan. Now, Jane, you come from a very interesting background. Will you tell us a bit about it? Uh, You were born in in, uh, what was then Northern Rhodesia. So, Cathy, yes, I was. My mother was a school teacher from County Tyrone and my father was a South African who was working up in a place called Kitwe, where the big copper mines were. And they met and I was born there. But when I was a young child, um, I came back and grew up in Northern Ireland. My mother was from Cookstown, but I actually grew up in Belfast and moved to Belfast in 1969. So the troubles had just started. But Africa, I think when it's in your blood and, and, and I, my family, I have many family members still living across Southern Africa. And as the vice provost for global relations at Trinity, I did a lot to develop our relationships uh, with African universities and have some very close academic collaborators, especially uh, in, in Cape Town at the University of Western Cape. So, so Africa is a very important part in my life. I'll bet, because there are so many threads that come together, I think, in what you're doing with your life. But you did move to Northern Ireland at a most unfortunate time, let's say. Tell us about that, what it was like to grow up there. Well, do you know something? I um, I look back on that time growing up in Northern Ireland and the truth is the troubles just consumed my childhood, my um, my teenage years. My mother was a school teacher in a very underprivileged part of Belfast. Uh, she was a single parent, so we would have spent a lot of time with her um, in her school and so firsthand not just the direct consequences of sectarianism, tribalism, violence, but also poverty. I think parts of Belfast, you know, some of the worst slums in Europe were were in Belfast and actually across Northern Ireland. So 
Um, it, it obviously did impact on me, although I suppose I didn't fully appreciate it at, at the time. Um, and when you're in that sort of environment, um, it's certainly, as far as I was concerned, um, uh, a very deep uh, 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 p- hatred of, of violence and anything um, uh, to do with it. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how delighted I am that Ireland is at peace. Um, and obviously, I think it's critical that, that we do everything possible to ensure we never go back to those very dark days of, of the Troubles. Was it very evident to you, even as a little girl, Jane, did you actually see violence? Oh, yes, Cathy. You know, you would be travelling. So my grandparents' hotel was blown up many, many times. And I remember as a young girl, uh, Bernadette Devlin was the um, local MP. And, you know, she was very helpful in trying to get compensation for the hotel that had been bombed. It wasn't the Europa, was it? No, no, no. This was in Cookstown. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't Europa. The most bombed hotel uh, 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 yes. uh, in Europe until Sarajevo. Absolutely. Um, but it was bombed three times. Um, we would be, you know, you would be caught up in street violence. I remember buses burning on the street. Um, but things like the general strike or the, you know, a blood, there was a, a bloody Friday where, I mean, I can't even remember how many bombs went off. And I remember at school, you would feel the building rock, um, uh, when the big bombs went off, uh, uh, close by. And my boyfriend of the time's mother, um, headed the casualty in, I think it was the Royal Victoria Hospital. You know, so, you know, either through family connections or because of direct experience, e- there was no escaping uh, 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 the, the troubles. And I, I look back on that time and it's obviously something that uh, I couldn't get out of. Qu- I mean, I, I left like so many of my generations as soon as I could to study and travel outside of Ireland. Actually, I had a place to read history in Trinity, but even Dublin was too close. I, You know, it, it, it was a very dark, dark time. And sadly, you know, when when people did leave, very few actually then went back. And, and that was became part of the problem then was this diaspora from uh, uh, Northern Ireland. I still have family, of course, in Northern Ireland and has still huge affection uh, for Northern Ireland and I uh, and have many, many friends. Um, and my mother lives in South Armagh and I uh, uh, Brexit, obviously, I have her skin in the game when that one, Cathy, uh, was very, very saddened by it and remain very saddened by it at a personal uh, level because of that very close connection, both growing up and then with my mother. Let's just Go back to your mother for a moment, because I'm very struck by she was teaching in a very deprived area, but she was also a a bit of an activist, Jane, by the sound of it, and who took you along to meetings, even in the middle of all this uproar and and danger. Do you know, my mother was a a big believer in the power of education. Um, And, you know, to paraphrase Nelson Mandela, of course, it's education. It's through education that we can change the world. And and I think teachers really believe that. I believe that as an educator. Um, and so uh, she used to do a lot of work in the community, especially around literacy. She was very engaged in local housing associations to try and improve the quality uh, of local housing. She was very involved in women's groups. And then there was a community, the Corrymeela community, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Cathy. I remember as a child, we used to be, and I say dragged up to Corrymeela, but of course, I look back, what a privilege. And uh, the the one that sticks in my memory most is, uh, it was Mother Teresa's visit to to, to Corrymeela. And I remember, 
you know, the, all the excitement around this. Um, so, so, so yes, she, she was. And it gave me a very interesting insight, uh, not just into the sectarianism, the tribalism, but also just the resilience um, and, um, you know, the dark, but also the humour. I mean, Belfast is, a, I mean, if people have gone through an awful lot and, and, and they are survivors. There's a tremendous tenacity, I think, to people who live through all of that and come out of it with a smile on their face. And, and as I say, I look at the present and, and I'm hopeful for the future. Jane, in terms of where you found yourself then, were you aware at the time of the structural injustice or were you conscious of that? Your mother was clearly conscious at a, at a, at a, at a social level of deprivation and that. But I am, suppose I want to ask you what side of, the, were, you, were, you, were you Catholic, Protestant, nationalist, loyalist? Were you on a particular side of the fence and were you aware of that? Do you know something? It's a good question, um, uh, Cathy. And I would be very unusual in that my wider family would be, uh, uh, I suppose, Presbyterian, but we were brought up in a very ungodly environment. And I think part of that, and in Ireland, that's almost the worst. <laughs> You're neither fish nor fowl. Um, uh, uh, so, so, so I, I, and I, to this day, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a godly person. And I actually feel that um, the churches in their most established ways have a lot to answer for uh, in the context of Northern Ireland. And some of my dearest and closest friends are, 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 are religious, I mean, nuns, particularly the late Margaret McCartan and, and other colleagues, I mean, are great friends, mentors. So, so it's, it's not a personal thing, but I think the institutional uh, uh, church on both sides ha- has a lot to answer uh, for. And I think the in fact, education was, if you, you know, segregated is deeply unfortunate. I was very lucky to go to a school that actually was one of the few integrated schools back in the day. It was a school called Methody, Methodist College, which was opposite Queens. And it wasn't just there were Catholic and Protestant kids, there were Jewish kids, there were Muslim kids. And, and I suppose I, I was brought up in a, in a very unusual way. But we also used to divide our time between Belfast and Critch Island in County Donegal. And it was like you would just flee at the every opportunity to Donegal to escape the the intensity of growing up in in Belfast. And to this day, uh, uh, Critch is uh, is 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 the place that I go where I, I spent a lot of the lockdown, where I wrote a lot of the Ford lectures that we'll be talking about, which we will come around to absolutely with great pleasure. Um, so, but you couldn't wait to get out of Northern Ireland. Dublin was too close, much as I liked the idea of Trinity. Um, so you took off to Scotland to the most beautiful St. Andrews. Do you know, uh, yes, St. Andrews, partly because it was as far away as you could possibly get. I wasn't aware of Aberdeen at that point. So, so and I had a very <laughs> happy four years uh, in Scotland. And then from Scotland, actually came back to Trinity to do a PhD. I always had a grow for Trinity. I'd visited Trinity as a 16-year-old. I did A-level Irish history, which was 20th century Irish history, which was very unusual because most of the history, of course, taught in the North was British history, not Irish history. And uh, uh, so as part of that, we came to visit Dublin. And I remember vividly going into Trinity on that visit uh, and, and being just blown away by the beauty of the place and and always thinking, oh, my God, I'd love to study here. And that's my 
I, did, I mean, not as an undergraduate, but why I was so happy to come back as a postgraduate to work with the amazing Aidan Clark. But but actually, um, uh, when I finished my PhD, there were no opportunities to work in Ireland. It was a very dark moment. So now we're talking about the very early 1990s. And so in a way, I had no choice but to go away again. And I worked for nearly a decade in the United States, uh, including at an amazing university, the University of California in Santa Barbara, and then at Yale, and then came back to the UK again, to Scotland. And I was in Aberdeen for nearly a decade before I came back to Ireland in 2003. And I look back on those experiences in a very positive way, because I think sometimes it's very good to go away and then to come back again. Mm. And all the time, Jane, light bulbs were going on in your head about various things. Tell us about that. Tell us about how, how the, 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 the idea of empire evolved, the depositions um, that were so important, in fact, in the, in the context of Northern Ireland and the whole island. Um, tell us how they began and how they evolved. And because now they've become so timely, you've really landed at a, a sweet point in history, haven't you, for your learnings? <laughs> well, do, do you know, Cathy, I've been working on Ireland and empire for over 30 years. And it's ironic that just now it's all of a sudden has become so topical. So, so basically Ireland was England's first colony. And my initial interest, um, in Irish history actually began as an undergraduate at St. Andrews. And I did an undergraduate dissertation or thesis on the McDonald's of Antrim. And I became extremely interested by this Scottish Catholic family that was engaging in plantation with the same level of enthusiasm as English Protestant colonists were. And that was the beginning of my journey, if you want. Uh, 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 and I, I then came back and did the PhD in Trinity with Aidan Clark, which developed that initial study of the McDonald's of Antrim and then took me from looking at empire in the context of plantation uh, to looking at it in a much uh, broader way. So over the course of my career, I have been very interested in, if you want, the Anglophone empire. In other words, how Ireland was part of the English speaking empire. But it then led to a much wider interest in empires. And I think we forget sometimes that empires were the norm for two millennia of civilization. It's empires, I mean, nation states that are the blip on that historical horizon. And so to be interested in studying empire, imperial processes, um, is something I, I've taken throughout my life. And I've had been very fortunate to travel all over the world. And I'm particularly interested in visiting countries that have um, experienced empires. Now, that might be going to Mexico and looking at the Incas, as well as looking at the ancient empires of, of, of Africa. Uh, I was in Ethiopia recently um, uh, at a conference. Um, but of course, the European empires. I, I spent a lot of time in Brazil, which would have been a hugely important part of the Portuguese empire. Or you look at other parts of Latin America, uh, which of course were integral to the Spanish uh, uh, global empire. And then we've got the English, as it became British after uh, uh, the Union uh, in uh, 1800, 1801, when it, it, sort of, it, it really became a British empire and, um, and, and have been very lucky to uh, engage and, uh, and visit countries, whether it's in Africa or across Asia. The country I think I, I, I was most 
blown away by was India. And what's interesting about India, Jane, in your, in your, in your vast research is you call it the, the colonial laboratory, that Ireland was the colonial laboratory for India. I do, I do. So, so Ireland was England's oldest colony and, and India, of course, is its largest um, and was the jewel in the imperial crown. But the reality is that Ireland and India's history goes right back to the 1660s. So I, I work very much in the 17th century, Cathy, and the founding father of Bombay was a man called Gerald Anger. Now, we all know Anger Street, um, but it was his brother, the Earl of Longford, who developed the first suburb in Dublin along Anger Street. And the capital for that came uh, from India on the back of all of his brother, Gerald Anger's activities as part of the East India Company. So Ireland's relationship with India goes back to the 1660s, really. And this story of the founding of Bombay by Gerald Anger. And then it goes right up to the present, of course. Here we have our uh, former Taoiseach, who is the son of, of an Indian uh, from actually an area quite close to Mumbai. And I think this very long relationship, um, partly brokered through the British Empire, has created such interesting opportunities, not just to look at Ireland as a laboratory for empire and what we exported, if you want, to India across the centuries, but also then what we share as a result of, of empire, whether it be language or infrastructure or universities or or law and order. I mean, there's so many things. I, I don't know if you've been to India, Cathy, but it's, it's very familiar. Of course, it's I mean, a vast country, uh, many, many languages and, 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 and things like the caste system that we don't have. But yet it's deeply familiar to us. Well, Jane, you wrote a piece of, for the Irish Times, uh, was it last week or the week before, which caused uh, a stir. And oddly enough, around the same time, I was reading a book by a neighbour of mine called Kaviri Madhavan called The Tainted, which is actually uh, about Irish soldiers serving the British Empire in India. Uh, so I found it deeply interesting, but it caused a stir. Now, can you tell listeners why that piece caused such a stir? It seemed like a sort of a regular piece of history reminding us of Irish involvement in empire, that we weren't always the oppressed and the victim. So just tell us a bit about that. I will, Cathy, but I just want to say at the height of the British Empire in India, two thirds of the British army in India was made up of Irish people. And there were eight provinces in India. Seven of the eight were governed by Irish uh, men, mostly Protestants, but there were Catholics there as well. Um, so, I mean, I'm just sharing with you the historical fact of it. Uh, so uh, the, going to the Irish Times op-ed, um, basically, I, I think I touched into our senses of identity. And I think over the past hundred years, it's been, you know, obviously we're a very proud republic. And I think it's sometimes quite hard to imagine Ireland as part of the British Empire not just a laboratory for it, but as active, if you want, agents of empire. So we were, if you want, victims of imperialism, but active perpetrators of it. And I'm not trying to judge anybody, Cathy. I'm just trying to say this was our history. This is our past. The evidence, the documents, you know, we need to understand the context. 
But actually engaging with that imperial history, not just in India, but across the former British Empire, but also across the former empires of the other European uh, uh, powers as well, is something that helps us better understand who we are and just the complexity of uh, uh, of the past. Um, and, And I think it's particularly important at the moment uh, as we as we look at Brexit, so in terms of uh, 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 discussion and debate, I love discussion and debate. I think that's what scholarship's all about. But I like it to be informed and respectful. What took me back um, is, of course, the anonymous trolling, the the venomous um, uh, uh, extremism, misogyny, racism, and that's also telling me something about Irish society. And as we engage with who we are, um, but also what it means to be Irish in the 21st century. And I think whatever it was about that article, it tapped into this. What I would love, though, is for this to be a constructive conversation uh, about how we uh, come to terms with, engage with. It doesn't mean we have to be bound by it, but it's, it's just understanding it, really, and understanding the context in which people did things. Did it give you, I suppose, a, a, another insight into, into the polarisation of the Brexit debate? Did you get something interesting, another insight from that? Yes, I did. So, so I think in an English context, Brexit has brought out very extreme English nationalism. And we see this in the context of the roads must fall uh, 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 movement or the statues must fall, probably People listening, you know, will be aware Cecil Rhodes, there's a statue to him outside Oriel College in the centre of Oxford. And back in 2015, basically, there was a a global movement um, that began in Cape Town with the removal of Rhodes' statue uh, that called uh, for his removal, but not just of the statues of Rhodes, for anybody associated uh, uh, with empire. So empire has been a particularly sensitive uh, subject in the context of English nationalism. On the foot of that, historians have become public enemy number one, as far as I can see, uh, uh, in an English context. And certainly anybody who wants to have, if you want, informed discussions about the legacy of empire, issues around slavery, they've been vilified, uh, uh, certainly in the tabloid press, but also uh, in social, social media. So it's again, there's clearly something very deep there. But what I wasn't expecting to see it was that in an Irish context, I think that as a political nation, we have really done a phenomenal job, especially in the recent past, in this, if you want, decade of commemorations, as we have dealt with some extraordinarily significant moments of commemoration, things like you know, the Great War, 1916, uh, even the partition um, uh, of our island. And 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 uh, many of our statues, of course, we've taken down. There's still some there. But but actually, we, we and, and so I suppose what was interesting to me was just to see, actually, maybe we haven't dealt with some of these ghosts of the past to the extent that we need to. Uh, and this is where I hope discussions like this, where the op-ed, where the Ford lectures will make a very positive uh, uh, contribution and allow a discussion to be opened up. Because I think even in Ireland, you know, we saw it over the summer with the um, uh, Irish Times articles about Edmund Burke, uh, 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 around John Mitchell, uh, 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 George Barclay, the philosopher. You know, there clearly is something in an Irish context that we need to explore as well. 
There certainly is. There is a huge area there and you have absolutely opened a window into that. And and the response to your piece is awfully interesting, Jane. And I hope like you that it, it, it will be developed. But in the meantime, the Ford Lectures, which is a pretty massive coup for all Irish people, for women, in the sense that Fewer than 10 women have delivered these prestigious lectures at Oxford since they were founded in 1896. You'll be the first person from a university in Ireland to do so since FSL Lyons in 1977. And you're the first woman from Ireland. I am. Yeah. So false modesty aside, Jane, are you delighted? (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared. It's scary, Cathy, is what it is. Uh, Of course, I'm delighted. It's a huge honour. These are the big lectures in Irish and British history. Oxford is the best university in the world. Um, And so it's a tremendous honour. And also the timing is obviously in terms of Brexit, the need to really look at East-West relationships and, and to do everything we possibly can as academics to strengthen those. It's a great opportunity for you know the oldest university in Ireland to talk to the oldest university uh, 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 in England, but also uh, uh, and, and I mean this very sincerely, it, these are six lectures. There's a series of them. They're very much focused uh, on the early modern period, which is really from the mid 16th to the mid 18th century. So you know it's an opportunity to actually roll our sleeves up and have, I hope, an informed discussion that will trigger serious scholarly de- debate, but also public discussion around some of these uh, 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 issues. So so it's a great honour and a great privilege. And I was absolutely uh, uh, delighted. So I'm very grateful to, you know, those who invited me to do so. Unfortunately, the pandemic means I have to deliver, deliver them online. I should be in Oxford at the moment. I'm not. I'm, I'm still here in Dublin. I'm going to deliver them online. But maybe there's a silver lining in that cloud as well, uh, 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 Cathy, because it means that Actually, people can tune in from anywhere. So rather than a couple of hundred people in an auditorium in Oxford, we now hopefully will have an audience that will include people from not just Oxford and England, but the UK, but but also from Ireland and around the world. And in that sense, maybe uh, it's a positive. I think so, because I think you, you couldn't have hit a more timely moment, I think, in terms of Black Lives Matter, that particular uh, deed of empire, of several empires indeed. Um, so I think it's going to be massive and I hope it'll be widely publicised and that people will listen very carefully. And very often, Jane, these lectures become classic texts as well, don't they? They do. So what would happen is I will hope to turn this series of lectures into a book, Cathy. Um, But the very fact that we're publishing them effectively online will also mean that they reach people. Hopefully they'll reach, they'll get into schools uh, as well as universities uh, and and, and just interested members of, of the general public around the world and especially the Irish diaspora, but anybody who's interested in in empire, I think, um, you know, the Irish case study is a very unusual one because we're both, if you want, a colony and um, uh, 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 colonizers. And and, and that doesn't often happen, although there are other examples of it. For example, the the Egypt. Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire, but also went on to colonize the Sudan. So I think, again, I, I, I really welcome opportunities for comparative history uh, across empires. So so if it does trigger that sort of conversation, I'll be delighted. 
green and blacks, wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Now, Jane, your academic progress has been amazing. Uh, you are now the Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History at Trinity. You're the chair of the Irish Research Council. You've done extraordinary work on the 1641 Deposition Project, which may have been central, in fact, to discussions about the peace process. And I urge people to look into that because the Depositions of Ordinary People, it's highly readable, was extremely controversial and was basically sorted out by you in the end. <laughs> so I think that's a really important part of your record, obviously. But can we talk about Academia for Women, which has been, let's say, a tiny bit controversial over the years. Um, what has it been like? I mean, we've, we've, we've seen gross sexism. We've seen the gender pay gap. We've seen the, the extraordinary reluctance to promote women within Irish Academia. I don't know if we're different to other countries in that regard. Have you been very conscious of this? Oh, absolutely, Cathy. Um, and throughout my career, I've tried to speak up. I think it was Madeleine Albright who said there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. It was. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so I myself have been mentored by incredible women. Um, I, I, I mentioned Margaret McCartan earlier, but she would be one of a number of women who have just been phenomenal supporters across, I mean, throughout my entire career. And I I'm so sad that that she's that she's no longer with us. But but um, I, I want to say that I would have been at the receiving end of harassment, bullying. I mean, deeply uh, unpleasant uh, uh, behaviour at, at, at the hand of very senior male academics, not here in Ireland, but when I when I taught in uh, uh, Aberdeen. Um, and, you know, here I was a single parent trying to rear two young children. And at times you're like, what's going on here? This is just wrong. And, you know, if you speak out, actually, you'll get no support from the university. And very often the perpetrator is promoted. Uh, and 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 the, the person who has been at the receiving end uh, uh, of the uh, uh, abuse is, is ignored. Anyway, so I sort of had to work my way through uh, that in, in Aberdeen. But it means that I certainly, when I came to Trinity, I came as a senior academic. I was one of the very few women, uh, uh, senior women uh, in Trinity. It has improved over the last two decades. And I certainly have done absolutely everything that I can to uh, support, uh, mentor, um, encourage uh, uh, talent across the board and particularly uh, uh, women, because I think that's for us to do. As chair of the Irish Research Council, we've led out on a gender strategy. Uh, and that's been very important, Cathy, because it's had very practical measures associated with it. And I share one statistic with you. We uh, do all of our evaluation for our Government of Ireland awards gender blind. And on the foot of that gender blind process, so in other words, when you're somebody being evaluated, you don't know if it's a man or a woman, the proportion of female applicants increased very successful female applicants increased very significantly in the arts, humanities, social sciences areas. It increased by about 20 percent in the STEM areas, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. It increased by nearly a third. So that is telling wow. you 
that there is a bias. You hope it's unconscious. So I think the first thing is recognizing that we've got a problem. Then it's about putting policies in place and implementing those policies uh, so we can do everything we can to protect women. Um, and um, the, Mary Mitchell O'Connor, the f- former minister, obviously did everything she could to try and address gender imbalances uh, uh, in the universities. But to my mind, you know, you have to do it at all levels. You have to do it in a very systemic mm-hmm. way. It's about changing a culture on the ground. We have made progress. We have a long, long way uh, uh, to go. And the fact that it's only very recently that Ireland even got a woman, this is our colleague in, in Limerick, Kirsten May, uh, who is there, uh, I think, uh, um, on a uh, eight, for the next 18 months um, while, while Limerick actually goes ahead and appoints a new president. But, you know, that is... It's the 21st century uh, uh, before um, uh, we managed to have a president of, of an Irish university. So, I mean, that is symptomatic of, of, of a very deep-seated malaise. The encouraging thing is Simon Harris and before him, Mary Mitchell O'Connor, have been very proactive in this space. So is the Higher Education Authority. And the universities themselves are waking up. But let's face it, universities are very traditional, often very hierarchical. And changing a culture in these sorts of institutions is an uphill struggle. So it, it requires a lot of effort from a lot of people mm. uh, and, 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 and we have to be in for the long term. Which brings us very neatly, Jane, <laughs> to the fact that you have put your name in the hat to become Trinity's next provost. Do you know, Kathy? Is that a side? Is that a side? <laughs> that information is in the public domain, and obviously, yes. um, I, I, I have. However, we're in the middle of a process. So much as I love to talk about things, uh, that's the one thing that, sadly, today I'm, I'm not at liberty uh, to talk about. But maybe in due course, we might continue that conversation. Um, uh, uh, but sadly, for now, I, I, I'm not able to comment further. We'd love to do that. But the official process that's underway, does it involve numerous interviews and submissions? And what, what, does, what, what, does, it, what does it entail? Well, there is a formal interview. There's a, a nomination process. Uh, and then uh, on the 6th of February, there is a very public two months of hustings, manifestos, website sites. So, so it's, it's a very unusual Web process. <laughs> Websites, yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, this is beginning to sound exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a and this will be in the public domain. It's it's aimed at the Trinity electorate, which is about eight hundred and fifty academics. But yes, it's 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 very public in in that sense. So you can monitor it uh, through the pages of the University Times and 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 through the various websites. Yep. Oh, I say the Irish Times will be monitoring it as well. (laughs) (laughs) This this sounds very exciting, Jane. Um, So that that begins on February 6th, that that kicks off on February 6th. It does. The the election aspect. uh, The election is on the the 10th of April. So all of this information is on on the Trinity website. It's, It's all in the public domain. Yeah. Well, Jane, we look very much forward to meeting you uh, after that date and to discussing this in great detail. And thank you so much. There is so much more we could talk about. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again. Thank you, Cathy. It's been an absolute privilege. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jane. And the very best of luck with everything. Thank you. 
Thanks so much to Jane Allmeyer and the best of luck to her on the lectures and that election for Trinity College Provost in April. And if you want to get in touch with us about that or about anything, we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and we'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.